Collective. This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. I have a PhD in criminal justice and 17 years experience in the law enforcement field, and I am happy to share my knowledge with you. Hello, class. Merry Christmas. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Boxing Day. Happy, I think Hanukkah's over. Happy Yule, Solstice, Festivus. Happy fucking everything. This is part seven and the last part of William Bonin. This has been quite the experience. And I want some feedback. I had a couple people tell me that they really liked this deep dive with all of the details about everything. And if you like these, like, multi, multi-part, deep, deep dive episodes, let me know, because there are plenty more where this one came from. If you like the simple, you know, like one-part ones, I know it's hard to believe, but sometimes those are actually harder. I can't really explain why, but it just seems to me like whenever I come across a really good topic that's worth talking about, it just seems like I can't stop or I don't know where to stop finding information. And then, of course, I have to get my own two cents in. So let me know what you think of these. I call them blockbuster episodes. And before we get into this, oh, the only trigger warning for this one is my language, because I mean, Yens know how I talk by now. And I just wanted to say this thing. I think a lot of podcasts would say something like, okay, um, it's all right to feel sorry for the kid, but not for the adult that he became. Well, I'm not going to say that, or I'm going to say, I don't think that that's a good thing to say, because what that is, is gatekeeping. That's like me trying to gatekeep your feelings or thoughts. It is not my place to tell you, um, you know, you can feel sorry for Bon and the kid, but at about like, I don't know, maybe age 16 or 17, you have to stop that and you have to now hate him. Or you can feel sorry for Pew, but you can't feel sorry for Miley or fuck that. No. Your feelings and thoughts are yours, and it is not my place to tell you what to think and feel. That's actually kind of, not talking about podcasts, but just in everyday relationships with people, it's a really bad idea if you're like consoling a friend or or comforting somebody, and a lot of times you might want to say, oh, don't feel that way, or don't think that. That's actually a little bit harmful because what you're doing is you're denying that person their feelings. And say, for example, um, somebody says, oh, you know, I hate myself, I'm ugly. 
you might want to say something like, oh, don't feel that way or don't think that. That's not helpful because you're denying them their feelings. It's a lot better to say something like, why do you feel that way? Or why do you think that way? Kind of talk them through their feelings that way. But don't say, you can't feel this, you shouldn't feel this, or you shouldn't think this. And that's today's therapy lesson. So we're not going to spend a lot of time discussing why Bonin became a serial killer, because if you were awake during any of part one, you will understand. And it would be even a bigger mystery if he turned out okay. However, he was one of three brothers, and the other two didn't become serial killers. So why not? Even if people are exposed to the same environment and experiences, they're still different people. And here's why. This has to do with genetics. Each parent actually has two different sets of genes, one from their mother and one from their father. They pass only half of their genes to their child. And the half that's passed is random. So each kid, in this case, Bobby, Billy, and Paul Bonin, each had a different set of genes. So they are not the same people. Each of us gets a set of 25,000 genes from our parents and the environment. And even if kids like siblings or half-siblings, are raised in the same household. And in this case, they were beat and neglected by the same parents and grandparents. They will still turn out to be different people. They will have different relationships, different school experiences, different friends. All of that will be different. And as to what was wrong with Bonin, we went over a few times where he received a psychiatric diagnosis, some of which, uh, when he was in a Tascadero back in those days, remember that being homosexual was considered a mental disorder. But the major one that he got was antisocial personality disorder, specifically a sociopath. Remember, psychopaths are born and sociopaths are made, and he was in the perfect environment to create a sociopath. If there was such thing as a recipe for creating the perfect sociopath, he had all the ingredients. He had emotional neglect from his parents, physical abuse from parents, sexual abuse from grandpap. Then we have the orphanage, which is an entire smorgasbord of bad shit. And I would actually be curious to know how other kids in this orphanage turned out. He was sexually abused by boys in the orphanage, also a counselor, and also a priest. He possibly had head trauma, either from, uh, remember when he was in the womb, his dad I think, kicked his mom in the abdomen or something. Or 
beatings on the head by the nuns or his dad. Probably by the time he was in his young teens, he had no self-esteem or self-love. And this is like psychology 101. If you don't love and respect yourself, you can't love or respect anybody else. Here's a little psychology lesson. We're going to talk about a psychologist named Abraham Maslow. He was an American psychologist, born in 1908, died in 1970. He's not one of the real widely known ones like Freud, Young, and some of them, but he's famous for his theory of the hierarchy of needs. This was first published in 1943 in a paper called A Theory of Human Motivation. And in my Instagram, I have a drawing of this pyramid. This theory explains human motivation by breaking down different levels of needs into a pyramid. So it's real easy to look at and comprehend. His theory is basically that people must have their most basic needs satisfied before they can move up the pyramid and get other needs satisfied. It's like kind of how you grow up or how you progress, how your psyche grows. At the very bottom of the pyramid is physiological needs, your most basic needs that you need to survive. Food, warmth, sleep. I think you get the idea. Things that keep you alive. The next level up is called safety. And that is your need to feel safe and secure in your environment. And we have to ask ourselves, did Bonin have this? I would have to say that no, he would flunk this level. Because I think he made a quote, something to the effect that we never knew when our dad was going to flip out and beat us. That is not a safe environment. So if we're going by Maslow's theory, he is permanently stuck at this level of development, meaning that he cannot further progress. And it further speaks to his time in the orphanage, where he spends his like entire time worried if some crazy-ass nun is going to kill him or give him brain damage. The next level on this pyramid is called love and belonging. This means the love of your family, friends, intimacy. According to Maslow, humans have an innate need to give and receive love. If they don't have this, it results in loneliness and depression. Did Bonin pass this level? No. That's kind of obvious. The next level up is called esteem. And Maslow says, this one is the need to gain recognition, status, and respect. And the way his pyramid works, you have to complete one level before you move up to the next. This level is respect for others and for yourself. Remember I said Bon and had no respect for human life. He would literally throw out his victims like garbage. And that's because if we use Maslow's theory, he never made it to this step. He never learned self-respect or respect for anybody. The last level, the top of the pyramid, is called self-actualization. 
This means the person has reached their full potential. They've met all the other needs and can focus on things like obtaining skills, continuing their education, pursuing life goals. And if you make it this far, Maslow didn't specifically say this, but this one is ongoing because nobody is perfect. No human ever reaches like the pinnacle of achievement and says, okay, I'm the best I can be. I've done all the things I can achieve. And that's all. Because humans are always learning and growing, or at least they should be. And like I said, the things that people focus on are the the things that people want to achieve if and when they get to the top of the pyramid is they want to continue their education. They want to learn as much as they can on a topic. They want to pursue their life goals, like maybe having a kid, raising kids to be good humans. This does not include being a serial killer with the highest number of victims or accomplices. So which of these levels, if we're going by this theory, would you say Bonin was stuck at? Sometimes he wasn't even satisfied at the basic level, like food. Remember, the kids were literally going around begging the neighbors for food. But like I said before, I think he's probably stuck at level two, which is the safety, the need to feel safe and secure. And according to the theory, and I'm picking this theory because I think it's perfect for us to understand his development or lack thereof. If he's stuck in level two, he's never going to reach any of the higher levels, like how to love himself or others, respect himself or others, learn important life skills, or be a productive member of society. And I'm going to briefly change tax. I'm going to talk about another serial killer for a minute. You may have heard of him. His name was Wesley Allen Dodd. He raped and killed three little boys. Um, like um, maybe ages about seven or eight in Washington in 1989. He was executed in 1993. And if you're wondering why I'm talking about him, the similarities between him and Bonin are remarkable and worth talking about. He didn't have what I would call a happy life, but it was nothing compared to Bonin's. He claimed to have a dad who was emotionally and physically abusive. He didn't have any friends at school. He was kind of one of those who, similar to Bonin, like nobody wanted to have anything to do with. At 13, he started exposing himself. And by the time he was in high school, he was molesting younger kids. He referred to kids as targets, and he surrounded himself with them. And like Bonin, He just kept doing this, kept sexually assaulting kids, and he would always get off easy. He claims, and of course he could be exaggerating, he claims that he had 50 victims, all under the age of 12, most of them boys. He was evaluated by a psychologist and diagnosed as a sexual psychopath, the same as Bonin was. And what's most interesting about him is he insisted that he could not control his urges. And when he was in prison, he said, if he got out, he will definitely kill again. In court, he said, quote, 
I must be executed before I have an opportunity to escape or kill someone else. If I do escape, I promise you I will kill and rape again, and I will enjoy every minute of it, end quote. Remember, Bonin said something similar in jail. He said if he ever got out, he would go right back to killing. And to him, killing was like an addiction, like a compulsive behavior. And the reason I brought up Wesley Dodd was because he said like the exact same thing. And what does this do for us? Well, this, because two different people who had no connection with each other said pretty much the same thing about killing. They both said that it was a compulsion and the urge to do it was so strong that they couldn't fight it. And how to explain this? Now we're going to talk about my favorite body part, the brain. We're going to talk about something called neural pathways. So as you may know, your brain is made of about a hundred billion cells called neurons. And what they do is send and receive information. A connection between neurons is called a neural pathway. And they're patterns that represent thoughts. And I know it's kind of weird to think about it, but this is true. Every idea, every thought, memory inside your brain is nothing but a little chemical pathway. And whenever you think of something for the first time or you do something for the first time, you create a new neural pathway. The next time you think this thought or do this behavior, this pathway lights up. So the more you repeat this thought or this behavior, the stronger and more dominant this neural pathway becomes. Neural pathways are very powerful in determining behavior, and a lot of our behavior is a habit. Maybe you have a habit of doing something that's pleasurable to you that causes release of our good friend dopamine, the happy chemical. Like, um, let's think of a healthy example. Listening to your favorite song. Every time you hear that song, the well, the first time you ever heard it, it made a neural pathway in your brain. If you never hear it again, that pathway just kind of becomes stagnant because it's not getting used. Every time you hear that song, if you're like me and you find a song that you like and you play it like a hundred times in a row, what I'm doing is lighting that neural pathway again and again. And every time I do, it's releasing dopamine. The brain has a reward system. And I think we've discussed some of these hormones before. There are four feel-good hormones. Dopamine, which we've just discussed. Serotonin. Serotonin is a mood booster. And that's the one that gives you a kind of euphoria or you know how you, um, you've heard of a runner's high? People who run, like they hit that spot where they're releasing serotonin. The other two are endorphins, which is called nature's painkiller. And the last one is oxytocin. This is called the love hormone. So if you're doing something pleasurable to you, you're getting a dopamine rush. And because it feels so good, you want to do it again and again because what is happening is 
you've become possibly addicted to that rush. That's why people who have habits like um, gambling, they've created a neural pathway in their brain that the rush of, I don't know if it's really because I've never been addicted to gambling. Um, I don't know if it's the fun of winning. That certainly would reduce some feel-good hormones. They go for it again and again because they want to feel that rush. So now we're going into everything I say after this point. I didn't get from any book or anywhere. This is just my own theories. So this is all straight from my brain to your ears. What made Bonin kill? Like many murderers, he started out as a rapist. Then he graduated to murder. And what's significant about him is that he didn't kill anybody till he had a partner, which, of course, was Vern. And I always wonder if he hadn't coerced the other person. If he didn't have a partner, would he have ever killed somebody? And we'll never know that. He very well may have graduated to that, but there's no way of knowing. So here's my crazy theory. And I know it's crazy. I know it's off the wall. So you don't have to either agree or disagree. Remember I mentioned Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I said that Bonin was stuck at the second stage because he never got love from anybody or self-love. Remember, he had a very specific type of victim profile, short, thin, longish hair. And I did put victims' pictures in one of my Instagrams, but they're so bad they're black and white, and they're small, and they're just not flattering. And I think if you had better, bigger color pictures of what these kids look like, that you could see it more, cle- more clearly, that it would be more obvious that they all had a similar look. They looked like what Bonin looked like when he was their age, when he was a teenager. And I have an opinion, just a theory, that every time he killed somebody, he was symbolically killing himself because he hated himself. This would have been on a subconscious level. He would not have realized that he was doing this. So that is my crazy-ass theory. The biggest question of all is, how did he get so many people to kill with him? That's what everybody wants to know. Remember, he's a sociopath, and during all his time in Atascadero and Vacaville, he learned how to play people, and he was very good at it, very good at manipulating people. When he wanted to, he could be extremely charming and manipulative. Does anybody remember Doug Clark and Carol Bundy? They were a couple, quick refresher, they were a serial killer team in the capital of serial murder, Los Angeles. They were called the Sunset Strip Slayers. Doug was the one who started killing people. Then he got Carol into it. And I'm sure everybody knows I've mentioned this enough. This was what my dissertation was about, multiple perpetrator homicides. The formula is always the same. If it's a a killing couple, a group, Maybe not even killing, but any kind of behavior or, I guess, any kind of aberrant behavior 
this same formula applies. We also saw this with Ian and Myra. One person is always the dominant. Then they go about grooming the other partner or, in this case, partners, into participating in crimes with them. So Bonn and used the same method as Doug Clark and Ian Brady did. He just did it five times. So if we're going to stick with this analogy, I like analogies because they're a great learning tool. Using the recipe analogy of how do you make an accomplice, Bonin used the same basic recipe. He just multiplied it by five. Remember how I said that he needed a spark to kill and Vern was the spark. We'll never know if he would have killed without Vern or without another partner, but I definitely think the presence of Vern turned on a switch, if you will. So let's go back and review their first kill. This was Mark Shelton on August 4th, 1979. They were at the drive-in, the two of them, and Bonin said, quote, During the break between movies, we got around to talking about murder and picking up a guy and having sex with him and then killing him. I was sort of joking at the time. Vern thought the idea was real neat. He told me, I always wanted to see what it was like to kill someone. One of my fantasies is to kill someone using an ice pick and putting it into his ear. We continued to talk, and then I thought I noticed he was very serious. I was surprised, so I asked him, are you serious? He said yes. Supposedly then Bonin and said, quote, if you can handle it, so can I. Okay, then, why don't we leave right now? I was kind of testing him. Really, I didn't think he would go for it, but he did. I don't like doing stuff by myself, end quote. And Dr. Pelto, who's the gel psychologist and the co-author of the book that I've referred to, this is not an exact quote from her word for word, but... She thought maybe they were like daring each other, kind of like playing chicken to see what would happen. And I think that's exactly what was going on. Bonin later told the police, quote, During the whole time driving out there, I had no intention of killing the guy. I was just going to have the sex. And then I figured I'll just leave him off there, end quote. So then they spot Mark walking home. And Bonin pulled his have-you-ever-gotten-head-from-a-guy routine, supposedly shows Mark some money, made him the offer. Mark supposedly agreed. And this was the one where Bonin said, let's go to my cabin. And of course, this is an invisible cabin, like his mafia. So, and this, it's all ridiculous, but this part's really ridiculous. He said, Vern kept Mark entertained with magic tricks while Bonin drove. And you maybe keep a three-year-old entertained with magic tricks, not somebody that you pick up hitchhiking. So he said they parked at a boarded-up gas station, and then he goes to the back of the van. Vern went in the front as a lookout. He claimed that him and Mark engaged in some consensual sex acts, whether or not they did. If I had to bet, I would say it was not consensual, but I don't know. And then supposedly Bonin started 
penetrating Mark. And he, Mark, freaked out and screamed, which, um, yeah. And then Bonin went into a rage and started just using this poor kid as a punching bag until he was unconscious. Then he supposedly told Vern, we can't let him go. We better just go ahead and finish him off. Meaning, of course, kill him. Vern supposedly agreed. Then he tied his shirt around Mark's neck and twisted it with a tire iron. This, I don't think, was planned. It was just him using what was there. And then, of course, the tire iron in the shirt thing became his go-to killing method. Of course, Mark started to struggle, and both Bonin and Vern had to fight with him. Bonin had never killed anybody, so he didn't know how hard it was to strangle somebody. I've never strangled anybody either, but I know that it's really hard and that most people who have never done it say that they're surprised at how hard it was. So they dump him out. Bonin um, shoved a branch up his butt. He claims he did this to make sure he was dead. And we see, we've seen this before, like an extra poke or a, a stab or something just to make sure they're dead. And he said on the way home, they were laughing. They thought that they'd gotten away with it. And he told Dr. Pelto that the next day he felt strange. And he said, quote, but man, I really felt a new kind of power from killing that first one. I'd never done that before. And it was a real high, end quote. So what he did was formed a new neural pathway that every time he killed, it lit up, and here comes all the happy chemicals, flood of dopamine and serotonin and whatever else came. And I think he was serious when he said he got addicted to the killing. Then he goes on to say, I needed to get out. I was so jumpy, and driving always made me peaceful. And there's something to this, because when I was writing pre-sentence investigations, and I would interview people in jail. There were at least two or three of the people who had killed somebody, and they said the same thing. Like, right after the murder occurred, they were so freaked out, like they couldn't believe what they'd done. I think one of them did have access to a car. He said, I just needed to go for a drive and clear my head. The other ones were like, I went on a long walk to, like, calm myself. So, there is definitely something to that. Marcus was the second victim, and this is the first one that Bonin killed alone. He said he saw him, and he was horny, but he wasn't this fucker horny. I mean, let's face it. He claims he brought up sex, and Marcus was agreeable, and they got in the back of the van. And it's very hard for me to believe that of all the 21 people he killed— Every single one was like, sure, I will have sex with you. Very hard to believe. He tied Mark up and he said, quote, I looked down at him lying there on his stomach with his hands turned, hands tied behind his back. I felt good. I felt like I was really something. I felt strong. Growing up, I always felt helpless. I started caressing his body by running my knife blade up and down the skin. All the while, I kept telling him how easy it would be to kill him. I still didn't plan to kill him. I wanted to play with him, show him who was boss. 
end quote. He claims, and this is kind of a repeat of what happened with Mark, he claims he penetrated him and he screamed and tried to punch Bonin. So Bonin was like, well, I had to defend myself. I had no choice. So he stabbed Marcus. And he said, quote, something inside me clicked and I was on autopilot, end quote. And then he stabbed him. It was like 70 sometimes. So he said he couldn't let him live because he'd tell the police and then, you know, he would go to prison again. So he took him to a side road. Marcus was still alive, tried to strangle him, but that didn't work. So he had to finish him off by stabbing him. And Bonin doesn't like to stab people. He said he had blood all over him and all over the van. And the smell of it made him sick. You know how blood has that, like, a, it smells like coins, like a metallic stink. So he goes to Vern's to clean up and, of course, told Vern all of the gory details. I'm sure he embellished. And a lot of times we have, like, one person suggested and the other thinks they're joking and they go along till the point where they're like, oh, shit, you know, he's serious. This is also called peer pressure, only a very extreme form of peer pressure. And the time where he says, we're sitting in the van, we, you know, we're in between breaks of the movie and we started discussing rape and murder. I wasn't there, but I don't think that's a topic that comes out of nowhere. Like, pass me the popcorn. What do you say we go out and rape and murder somebody? No. It had to have been discussed before. And then, of course, after his, after he killed Marcus, he's like, well, you know, I had to defend myself. And when he went to Vern's, Vern probably gave him praise, which is more positive feedback. So that's reinforcing this behavior some more. And now they've crossed the line. I don't know about Vern, but Bonin has this new neural pathway. And like I said, every time he kills, it gets reinforced. It gives out the happy chemicals. And he's now addicted to this. So why have killing partners? What is the thing with having partners for Bonin? Killing was a social event. Like, um, I don't know, watching... Horror movies is more fun with a group or having, I don't know, a barbecue is more fun with a group. For him, raping and killing was more fun with a group. This serves two purposes for him. It forms a bond with the other person, meaning the other killer. He feeds off of their energy. So both killers are now feeding off of each other's energy. And it's a lot easier for them to participate in something deranged like this. Plus, he's showing off. He likes killing in front of an audience. So he can say, look how big and bad I am. I'm strangling. I'm raping. I'm stabbing. And the partners react in a positive manner. So he gets more positive feedback. And what he's done is just create one big reinforcement loop. He kills somebody. The partners are like, yeah, Bill, go, Bill. He gets the positive reinforcement. He gets the old um, dopamine and serotonin. 
because he's doing something that he enjoys. So, of course, he likes this. We only know about Vern, Eric, Miley, Monroe, and Pugh. And who's to say there weren't others? Maybe he met some youngster. Thanks to Scott, there was no shortage of meeting youngsters. And he brought up the topic of rape and murder, and the other person rejected the idea. That could very well have happened. Who knows how many times he picked up a hitchhiker, and this person just got lucky that he, for whatever reason, didn't try to rape and kill him. Wow. So that has been some ride, no pun intended. And the regular episodes will be back in mid-January. I already have the case I'm going to talk about picked out. I have a book on it, so I'll have that time too. It's it's not a very well-known case. It's kind of older. I think you will find it interesting. So let's all put our collective thoughts together and wish a happy holidays in heaven to Mark Shelton, Marcus Grabs, Robert Worostek, Donald Hyden, David Marillo, Wallace Tanner, John Doe, Dennis Fox, John Kilpatrick, Michael McDonald, James Moore, Charles Miranda, James McCabe, Ronald Gatlin, Glenn Barker, Rusty Rue, Harry Turner, Stephen Wood, Darren Kendrick, Larry Sharp, Sean King, and Stephen Wells. And thank you to everybody all around the world who's listened to all of this and listened to me this year. Have a great holiday season, whatever it is you celebrate. Don't drink and drive or do drugs and drive. Definitely don't pick up any hitchhikers or hitchhike. And before we go, let's hear from Jay of Fright Flick FMK. You like scary movies? If your answer is yes, then you got to check out my show, Fright Flick FMK. My name's Jay, and along with my co-host, Gentleman and Jack, I watch and discuss horror movies and tell you what I think about them. New or old, mainstream or underground. No horror flick is safe from my warped opinion. So listen to Fright Flick FMK now. It's on all major podcast platforms and YouTube. Also, be sure to follow the show on TikTok and Instagram. But be warned, this promo is the longest amount of time you'll hear me talk without swearing or cracking an offensive joke.